Well, good morning. It is a privilege to get to share the Word of God this morning with you. How thankful are you for, for Jeff? Um, if you don't know, my name is Cody Alvarez. I'm one of the pastors here. The other pastor is Brandon, and he's on sabbatical, and he normally leads us in worship. But for the last three weeks, four weeks, Jeff has stepped up. And can we let him know how grateful we are for him? I mean, it looks like he's having fun. And I, I, I greatly appreciate he and the team for stepping up. You know, uh, you don't realize how much of the stuff Brandon was doing until you see, like, on, on Sunday morning before you get here, there's just a, a covey of people moving around, turning stuff on, making, making sure lights are on and sound, and they're doing things. And the, the church is just stepping up and serving in, in, in all these ways. And I'm just very, very grateful. But let's, let's, stop for a minute and let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on on reading his word. God, as we continue in worship through the word, I pray that you would illuminate our eyes. God, open our hearts. If there's anybody who doesn't believe in you, God, I pray that they would be smitten with your love. God, I pray for those of us who have been believers for a long time. Maybe our love may have grown cold or maybe we just kind of feel distanced. God, I just pray that we would look at the romance between Boaz and, and, and Ruth. God, and I pray that it would just kindle the, the romance between us and you. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Ruth 4, and we got one more, one more sermon in this series after this morning. And Ruth 4, we're continuing our series called Silence and Sovereignty. And my hope for you this morning is that, I mean, all of us are going through stuff. But when, when you are going through something and, and you would know that God is near, even though God is maybe silent in speaking in your life, and maybe you can't in the moment see how he's directing the future, what you would be able to do is trust by looking at this um, story that you see that, yeah, God is silent in the story of Ruth, but we see him directing and working all these situations, good and bad out, for her good and for his ultimate glory and for his kingdom purposes. Last week, we were left on a cliffhanger wondering if Ruth and Boaz were going to be able to get married. So if you've not been with us this morning, I see quite a few people who are who are, are, haven't been with us for the whole series. So let's do just a quick recap. So the story opens with this lady, Naomi, and her uh, children, uh, and her husband. So they, there's a famine, and it drives them into a different country. They've been in Bethlehem, the house of bread, but a famine comes, and they have to leave. And as they leave, excuse me, as they leave, um, they... They, they, they separate themselves from the people of God. And while in Moab, the sons take two wives. And uh, Naomi's husband dies, and then the two sons die, leaving Naomi with these two Moabite women, and one of whom, her name is Ruth. Ruth uh, converts and decides to come back to Bethlehem with, with Naomi while the other one stays. So while in Moab, um, or I'm sorry, while in Bethlehem, 
Ruth gleans at Boaz's field and discovers that Boaz is from the same clan as her late husband. And that allows her, um, that allows him to have the right to be a redeemer for her. And after that, Ruth went to Boaz and he lets, she lets him know that, hey, if you're interested, I'm interested. Well, we find out that Boaz was very interested. He's like, actually, I've already done my research, and there's somebody who is nearer to kin, somebody who has first rights to be a redeemer where I don't. So um, we need to do the right thing the right way. But he lets her know, like, before the end of the day happens, you're going to know your future. Before the end of the day happens, you're, you're going to have a redeemer. So we ended last week with Boaz being a willing redeemer, um, to re- and he was willing and ready to redeem her, and his desire to marry her was made known. Um, so this morning, we're going to find out Ruth's fate. Will she uh, be redeemed by the man she loves, or will this other man marry her and take her, uh, take her and her, her husband's inheritance? Ultimately, what we're going to find is this man is both unwilling and unable to do what is required to redeem Ruth. But Boaz, he stands at the ready, willing and able to do what is required to redeem the bride. Boaz in this story is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, a picture of our kinsman redeemer. So like we do every week, Here's the the true statement that is going to kind of drive what we talk about from the text. Jesus, like Boaz, stands at the ready, willing and able to redeem and fulfill all that is required uh, to redeem the bride. So what do we do with this? We, We have to trust in what Jesus did and not in what we can do. So... We're going to take this in three parts. First, we're going to see an unable and unwilling redeemer. Let's read the passage together in verses 1 through 6. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoke came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Verse 3, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, <coughs> who, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of the land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, um, but if you will not tell me that I might know for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I will come, and I come after you. And he said, being the, the closer to kin, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So let's, let's break that down. So first we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. And this guy had a chance to be re- remembered. So 
Boaz, he goes to the city gate, and um, he's, gonna, he, he's determined to make something happen today. Verse 2 tells us that he, he got these 10 elders to sit down. Remember, uh, this was in the time of the barley harvest. So this, this gives us a little clarity to how important Boaz actually is. There's only a couple of days a year that you can harvest. Like, this is their living for the whole year. This is what they're going to eat on for the whole year. And, and Boaz, in just a few days they have to do, us, uh, to do this, draws uh, these, these elders, these important man, men, these, these landowners, into his weird love triangle. How many of us would do that? On just a couple of days a year, we had to work. Probably not. Bo- Boaz has some clout. So it says he, he verse 2, he took 10 men. That, that word translates from the Hebrew to procure, procure. I'll get that out in a second. Meaning that Boaz had to go round all the guys up. So whether he went or sent some servants, again, Boaz had, an, had enough about him. He was well-known enough and important enough that when he sent for these guys, they showed up. So in the, in the Old Testament, you see this, this, this setting at the city gate often. And the city gate is where announcements would be made, but it's also where legal proceedings would go on. And that's what we see right here. So look back at verse 1. Boaz has assembled everyone, and wouldn't you know it, as luck would have it, um, this, this Redeemer just happens to come by. But we're not going to chalk anything up to luck. Instead, we're going to give it over to the divine, sovereign hand of God. Just like it wasn't luck that forced it wasn't bad luck that forced Naomi to leave from, from Bethlehem to go to Moab. It wasn't luck that the, the, the son took Ruth to be his wife. It wasn't bad luck that, the, that uh, the, the husband and the two sons died and now we have three widows. It wasn't just good luck that when they came back to Bethlehem and they were gleaning that it just so happened to one of the two guys that we're, we know of that can redeem Ruth, she just happens upon his field. It's not luck. And it's not luck that brought this potential redeemer by at just the right time. It was God's sovereign hand moving people and situations to bring about his kingdom purposes. And his purpose here is that Ruth, he did all this so that Ruth would marry Boaz and give birth to, come on, y'all know this at this point, would give birth to Obed, and Obed would give birth to Jesse, or uh, not give birth to, but father. That, that, sorry, <laughs> wrong crowd for that one. But uh, <laughs> man, I'll get it together in a second. But that he would father uh, Jesse, and that Jesse would father who would be King David. And then God promises in Samuel that this, to this King David that he would set up a, a line for his throne that there would be one coming that would reign forever and ever. 
and that is going to be King Jesus. God in his sovereignty is working in every situation to work all things out for the good of those who love him and for his glory and kingdom purposes. So Romans 8 tells us he works all things out. Does God work good things out for his purposes? That, that falls in all. Does God work out bad things for his purposes? We're, we're, we don't want to shake our head to that one, but it's true. I mean, look at all the things Naomi and Ruth had to endure for God to bring his glory and God to work out their good in this situation. So in verse 2, Boaz calls him to come sit down. And I, I, love, I, love, this tra- I, I love this part because my translation says he calls to, hey, friend, come over here and sit down. But what it really says in the Hebrew is uh, to, he calls this so-and-so to come sit down. And this book is so specific as far as a record goes of people's names and um, places and all these things. But this cat, who ha- he's important. They know exactly who he is, but he's recorded as this so-and-so. Had this so-and-so acted in faith and stepped up to the plate, we would know his name. His name would have been recorded in Matthew 1.5. But instead... His name is forgotten in history, and Boaz's name is recorded in Matthew 1.5. I think it's a good word for us, too, to think about. The next book we're going to study is 1 Peter. And one of the charges in the book is to live for things that will last, things that will have a legacy when we step from this life into the next. In your life, you have a chance to be remembered by God for how you contribute to the advancement of His kingdom with your time, with your talent, and with your treasure. Now, let me be clear, that doesn't have anything to do with your salvation, but we know when we go into this next life, God has different prizes and different treasures that He's going to give to those who serve Him well in this life. So let's be a people who live for and invest in the things that will pass through the fire. So this so-and-so had a chance to redeem. Boaz tells uh, the man that Naomi is ready to sell the field, and you've got the first opportunity to buy it. And if you're not going to do anything with it, I am. So he kind of puts them in in a pressure situation, like decide now. Right now, right now, right now, make a decision, make a decision, make a decision. He puts, he puts that hard press on them. So let's take a step back and let's talk about what's going on with the land here because honestly, till this week, I really didn't know. I, I, this has been my biggest question through the book. What is being redeemed? How is, what, what's going on here? Because it's honestly not very clear. So when the famine came, Uh, that made Naomi and her husband move, it's my guess that the famine somehow impoverished them. And Elimelech was a landowner. Like, if you got land, you can grow stuff. If you got land, you're okay. But they were in such a dire situation that uh, he felt he had to leave. So my guess is, instead of selling himself into slavery or selling his family into slavery to get out of the pit that they dug themselves in, he sold the usage of his land. 
you actually couldn't sell your land. Like, the, the, you couldn't sell land because your land was your family's inheritance from God. Like, go all the way back to uh, Genesis 12. God promises that he's going to give them the land of Canaan. Fast forward to the, the, to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. There's a promise that each of these families are going to receive land. And that land is to stand as a testament to God's covenant faithfulness to these people. And to his promise that he made all the way back to Abraham. So you fast forward through Joshua and the land gets split up and given to all the families. They're, they're not allowed to sell the land. Um, but what they could do is sell the right to work the land. Because you're not inheriting the land from your father. You're inheriting the land from God. You don't, you don't get to sell it. So according to the Mosaic Law, uh, the, the land was never to leave the possession of your family. Now, we are in the time of the judges, and each man did what was right in his own eyes, so some of that might have been going on. But God knew that people would get in these different financial situations, and he gave them the ability to make money by um, selling the, the right to use the land for um, up to 50 years. You couldn't, you couldn't do it beyond 50 years, if you've ever heard that term, jubilee. That's where all debts are forgiven. So this, this was one of God's graces. So this is the only thing to me that makes sense because how could Naomi sell it? Um, she, she, but what she could do was sell the light. Uh, she, but what, I'll get there in a second, guys. But what she could do is... If she hadn't have sold the right whenever she came back or when her husband Elimelech died, her and her two sons could have came home and they could have worked the land. Or whenever she and, um, whenever she and Ruth came back, they could have worked the land. If Naomi had the right to sell the land, that means she also had the right to work the land. And if she could work the land, she could also sell the land. Um, so she wouldn't have had to work as a common beggar so this would lead me to conclude that she and Elimelech had sold the right to work their land. So what was being redeemed was the right to the land and to, to, to take it out of the hands of whatever outsider they sold the, the usage to. Without a living heir, the law in Deuteronomy 25 allows this kinsman redeemer, allows this Gil, this one who's next to kin, to uh, buy that estate unless there is a widow, and if there is a widow, he was to marry her and father a son, and, and that child uh, take that dead man's name and, and the right to that land. And that's, that's what the kinsman redeemer did. He perpetuated that, that other person's name. So this is what this guy said he's willing to do. He wanted to buy the land back so that he could work it. He wasn't thinking about Ruth. So think about this. He works, he works his land. He works Elimelech's land. In a couple of years, that dude is just in a totally different financial stratosphere. So the Redeemer said, hey, I'm in. I'll buy it. I'll redeem it. Now, the book of Ruth has made it clear that there was buzz in town about, about this Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. She, uh, she, she's known to be worthy at the gate. Where are they hanging out right now? The gate. 
He was only interested in the land. He was not interested in the lady as well. He wasn't going to say anything about Ruth. He was just going to ignore it. I have a hard time thinking that he was ignorant about Ruth. I think he was just going to ignore his legal responsibility. So Boaz, he puts all the cards on the table in verse 5 in front of all these witnesses. If these witnesses agree to it, that means they are complicit in this wrongdoing. So verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Ruth was the apple of Boaz's eyes. Boaz was in love, and he was not about to let this dude weasel out of his responsibility. But what's crazy is, the law, the letter of the law, does not necessarily require anyone but the brother to, to, to perpetuate the name of the dead. But the heart of the law does. And Boaz is concerned about the heart of the law. Many historians think um, that this was the cultural practice, that this next to kin, if there wasn't a brother, could do this. And they also, also believe that it is highly improbable that, an elder, that these elders would recognize any claim to the land that Ruth would have. Notice, he comes and says, Naomi's about to sell the land. Ruth has the claim to Malon's portion. Boaz said, if you're going to redeem the land, you're going to redeem Ruth the Moabite and perpetuate her husband's name. Outside of being in love with Ruth, why would Boaz, this, this man of society, be so concerned with this foreigner's plight? No one else really did. Look at the screen. I think Matthew 1.5 will shed some light on this for us. We always talk about how boring those genealogies are. Here's some cool stuff. So Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Boaz's mother was, was Rahab. Rahab wasn't a Jew. You'll remember from the story of uh, uh, in, in Joshua that she lives in Jericho. You know, the walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down. Well, before that, they sent in spies, and these spies hid in the house of this prostitute, Rahab. And Rahab, by faith, hid the prostitutes, or hid the prostitutes, hid the spies. And she, let, she converts, and when, when they come in and destroy the city, God allows her to live in her family. And she marries this man named Salmon. And they have this man named Boaz. This might add to why Boaz is so impressed and compassionate with Ruth being himself a half-blooded Jew. Totally my speculation, but this might be why he's an older, wealthy landowner who hasn't yet found a wife. You know, we don't necessarily think that way, but these people did. 
Boaz is able to show empathy when no one else did because he had experienced his, his mom as an outsider. And here's a point of application for us. We need empathy because empathy drives compassion. Empathy drives compassion. The heart of the Savior is that he looked on the people and had compassion. For many of us, we've been believers for such a a long time, it's hard to put ourselves back in that place. You need to see yourself as a sinner. That apart from God, you would be destined for hell. You would be left to your own devices. We look at the world and we look at the things people are doing and we're disgusted. And we forget how disgusting our sin is and was. We should not be surprised when sinners sin. We should daily preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves that we are sinners in need of grace. And apart from that grace, we would be doomed. And when we wake up with that empathy in our heart, when we look at the people around us, we're not going to see them with disgust. We're going to see them with compassion. If we don't do that, we're rarely going to share Jesus. And when we do share Jesus, it's just going to be checking a box. But when you see yourself as a sinner in need of grace, that will change your zeal for the lost. Well, going back to our so-and-so, the thought obtaining his bloodline and sharing his inheritance with this Gentile and taking care of Naomi and Ruth, that was just, it was too much. Whether it was too much financially or just too much to bear mentally, I don't know. So this is what he says in verse 6. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Another thing that he could have been thinking about is with Ruth's age, we don't know how old she is, but we knew she was married for a time. Um, She's barren as far as he knows because she was married and didn't have kids. So that might be what he means by impairing his inheritance. Or if, if he would have fathered just one son by her, his inheritance would then, um, if there's only one son, would be transferred to uh, Elimelech's family away from his family. The idea of that may have been too much. This redeemer was unwilling and unable to redeem. The requirement to redeem made what seemed to be the most obvious redeemer unable to fulfill the law unable to actually redeem. It is the same with our salvation. The most obvious redeemer in human eyes would be the law. It would be works. It would be religious ceremony. But those things cannot redeem. 
The point of the law is when we stand in front of the law, the law is to stand as a mirror that when we look into it and when we look deeply at it, we would see ourselves as lying, thieving, blasphemous, adultering, murderers. That's what the law does. It reflects back on us who we really are and points us to our need for Jesus Christ. You need to understand the law is the expectation. So those of you who believe you have to be good enough to get to heaven, let's, let's start here. One, you're born into sin. So let's pretend this is a good bar. First, we're born into sin, Romans 5. So you're already under the good bar. It gives you no ability to climb. Every sin, if you're walking with me on this imaginary good bar, just drops you down. The law has no provision to make you right on your own. Now, what the law does do is it gives us a covering in the Old Testament where, where they would, uh, they would su- cover with the blood our sins. But that's not doing away with it. The law does give provision for a greater sacrifice. The law does give provision for a greater high priest. The law does give provision for a king greater than David who would come as the great high priest who can once and for all go into the throne room of heaven and lay his greater sacrifice, his own blood, on the altar of God on our behalf so that we would be made actually righteous. Everything else is hoping in a redeemer that is both unwilling and unable to redeem you. The world says, make yourself right with God. You need to do more, try harder, do better, more religious works. That is a different gospel. That is a false gospel. That is, in our eyes, what seems like the most obvious redeemer, but it will lead you to the road of destruction. Just like the so-and-so. I'm not saying he wasn't a believer, but his name was forgotten in history. On that day of judgment, If you don't come to God by faith alone, your name's going to be forgotten. It will not be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. All we have is grace, and grace is an unmerited favor. We get to see Boaz and Ruth here. Ruth found unmerited favor in the eyes of Boaz. She couldn't redeem herself, she couldn't redeem her land. She was totally and completely dependent on the grace of Boaz. We cannot earn our own redemption. All we have is grace. We have found unmerited favor in the eyes of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He chose to die for us. Like love motivates Boaz, love motivates Jesus. And when everything in the world says, I cannot redeem it. He says, I will redeem it. He sees us flaws and all, and we find redemption by grace alone and Christ alone. So if if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you want to, the Bible tells us if we confess our mouth with our mouth our sin, or if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that, that Jesus died for us, that he will save us as well. So, After the service, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. 
But now let's look at verse 7. We're going to see a ready redeemer. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction one had to draw off his sandal and, and give it to the other. This was the, the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders um, and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought for, uh, from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belongs to Chilion and to Malon. Verse 10. Also Ruth said, uh, Ruth the Moab, also Ruth the Moabite and, and the, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife and to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So I know this is like a super serious part where all the things come together, but I think verse 7 is hilarious. All right, so when we do like a legal transaction, if I'm going to buy a piece of land from you, you're going to buy a piece of land from me, we got to sign on the dotted line, right? Well, and we, we hold on to these documents so that we can come back to it and go, oh, Cody doesn't own that land anymore. These guys take off their sandals and switch. Like, how long does that go on? Like, so I'm a size 12. And what if I buy a piece of property from a size 10? Do, do I have to put both shoes on? Like my, my shoe that fits and like my heel hang out and walk all the way home in that? Like how long do I have to wear this crusty footed dude sandal? <laughs> it's not the question that the text is answering, but it's the question I have. <laughs> but what it does answer is that this is how legal exchanges were made. And now Boaz has bought the rights to redeem. And I love in verses uh, 9 through, through 10, he clarifies exactly what he's redeeming. He's like, hey, I'm redeeming the land, but I'm marrying the, the Moabite. She's mine. Boaz got the other man to step aside so that he could purchase the right of the land from, from the one who's, who had the right to, to, to who, the one who owned the right to work it that Elimelech had sold it to. But now we see Boaz redeem it, and it moves, the land moves from being in the hands of an outsider back into the clan that it belongs. And he says, yeah, this Moabite, I'm marrying her too. And I love how selfless he is. He doesn't care about his name. Like, guys, I, 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 I can only speak from a guy, but the idea of, of my last name carrying on, y'all, we think about that, right? Selfless, he doesn't care. What he cares about is Ruth. And whatever he has to do, whatever cost it takes to marry her, he's willing to lay all the other things down. By, by land, yeah, I'll do it. Possibly my only heir and all, all my st stuff now belongs to another man's name, no problem. He doesn't care if his family members' names are cut off from existence and possibly forgotten. 
But actually what happens, by taking on this humility and this selfless love towards Ruth, ultimately God, he exalts Boaz. And Boaz is the one remembered in the lineage of Jesus. Now, yeah, Malon got his inheritance, Elimelech's inheritance. Technically, like as far as the law's concerned, um, Malon is, is, is Obed's daddy. But in God's eyes, when God's counting it, he remembers the righteous action done by Boaz. God honors him for it. Boaz was a ready redeemer. And just as we see Boaz ready and willing to redeem, so is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus stands at the ready, willing to redeem all who call on his name. And he paid the cost. Let's look at verse 11. This is our last part, 11 and 12. A blessing for the Redeemer and the redeemed. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by the young woman. Verse 11, we have unanimous consent from, from these witnesses to what Boaz is going to do. Then I love they offer a blessing. First, they offer a blessing to Ruth's womb. Again, so far, she's, she's a barren woman. Boaz is taking a risk, and they're offering, they're, they're, they're praying to the Lord, offering a blessing on this offspring. And they ask God to bless her like Rachel and Leah. You'll, you'll remember that these two women, they, they are the wives of Jacob, later to be named Israel. And between the two of them, and they these guys really churched this up between the two of them and their um, slaves. They, they have 12 children who make the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're asking a special honor for Ruth. They're asking a special honor for this Gentile that she would be remembered among the matriarchs of Israel. They're, they're, they're blessing the redeemed. But what's crazy is God gives her a greater honor. So Leah is the mother of Judah, and Judah is the line from which Jesus comes from. Leah's name's not named in the lineages in Luke and in Matthew. The only names, the only three women outside of Mary whose name is mentioned are three Gentiles. Tamar, who we're about to talk about, Rahab, who we've already talked about, and Ruth. It was always God's plan and God's intention to graft in all nations. So then they, they turned their attention to Boaz and they gave him uh, a challenge, calling him to act worthy um, in Ephrath, which is just a colloquialism for Bethlehem. 
And they, they go on and tell him if he does this, his name will be renowned. And his name is renowned throughout all generations for his righteous actions. Not only, uh, like I said, not only was he, he wasn't technic, or he, he was Obed's father, but Obed legally was the son of uh, Malon. But both genealogies in Luke and Matthew, like we always talk about how boring the genealogies are. Well, the, the genealogies are telling the story. Boaz is named in both of them as the father of Obed and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, of whom God promises there will be one who sits on his throne and he shall reign eternally, and that is King Jesus. Why do we interpret that this way? Well, the very last line of the book of Ruth interprets it this way with the exception of King Jesus. Let's, let's look, look with me at verse 12 real quick at Tamar. Let's look at who she is. She may not be as well known to you, but um, Judah's son, Perez, marries her. Well, Perez dies, and then this custom, this is before the law, um, she, she marries the next son. He dies too. Well, Judah's starting to feel like she might be a black widow. He's got one last son, so he's like, I'm gonna hide this one. But she, like, that's her protection. That's her inheritance. That's like... So she knows that Judah's sketchy, and she's kind of sketchy too, so she, dressed up like, she dresses up like a prostitute. He goes in, and Judah goes in and lays with her, and um, fathers a child, and Perez is not that child's daddy, it's Judah, but we see Perez being the father of this child. And this is one of the ladies mentioned in the lineage of Judah, in the lineage of Jesus. These three women, Rahab, Ruth, and Tamar. Maybe you haven't noticed or somebody hasn't told you, but all the Old Testament is building to Jesus, or none of this makes sense. So, why doesn't God wipe out the world with Noah? Why, why, why did he leave Noah? Because Noah was so righteous? I think righteousness was like in qualification to those around him because we see him be a drunk when he gets off the boat. He had faith. But why did he leave him? Why did he spare him? Why didn't he just start over? Because if he did, it would have made him a liar because he promised Adam and Eve in the garden, that there would be this one in Genesis 3.15 who would, yeah, the snake would, would, would strike his heel, but ultimately he would crush its head. Then we see a promise made in, in, in Genesis 12 to Abraham that he would bless all the nations and, and that his family would be great. All right, fast forward some more. The this. This place in where Judah and Tamar takes place, y'all may not recognize that story well, but we all know Joseph. Why did God allow all those things to happen to Joseph? Why did his, his brother sell him into slavery? Because God was keeping his covenants. He knew a famine was coming. 
God allowed that to happen because Judah was the line that he was going to bring the Savior through. We get this weird story about Judah in the middle of all the stuff about Joseph. And at the end of the story of Joseph, he, uh, the brothers are like worried, like, oh, what's he going to do to us? And he tells them what man meant for evil, God meant for good. God's working through all of these things to bring about King Jesus through the line of Judah. All these things in the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus Christ. If not, the, the whole story is just random, and it's not. It's a, it's a well-organized tapestry of events that we see God working through to bring about King Jesus. And all these events are showing the need for a Redeemer and reveals a willing and ready Redeemer. God sent Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. Jesus was born of a virgin, being both the son of God and the son of man, making him a legal redeemer by the law in Deuteronomy 25. Jesus lived for 33 years and he fulfilled and kept the law. Jesus then willingly gave his life up. Jesus gave up his life, accepted the scorn and the ridicule and the shame because he was willing to do whatever it took to buy his bride. That close redeemer, he wasn't willing, was he, to take the shame of bringing on this Moabite. Jesus took it to redeem his bride. To redeem is to buy. Because you and I have broken the law of God, there is a debt against us. God being a good Judge must uphold the law, but God is gracious and merciful in sending his son to pay our debt. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, there is no remission of sin. And we need to understand our sin as nothing less than this. Our sin is so egregious that the only just payment for it against the holy God was the blood of God himself. That's why God became man and dwelt among us. This story, this book, it's, it's, the, it's the divine romance being unveiled page after page, taking us to that climactic moment when Jesus comes to earth. But everybody preaches about the cross being the climax or the resurrection being the climax. The climax of the Bible is Revelation 21 and 22, when God brings his bride to himself that which he redeemed, and we get, to, we get to reign with God forever in heaven. The story in Ruth is just an illustration, while true, an illustration, a glimpse of the love that God has for us as his bride. Just like Boaz stands at the ready, willing, and able to fulfill all that's required to, to, to redeem his bride, Jesus does too. Jesus is standing ready and willing and able to redeem you if you would just put your faith and your trust in him. If you will, bow your heads with me.